This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck. Welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you here as always. Phone lines are open right off the bat, 888-900-3393. Love to hear from you, your thoughts about anything we're talking about or anything you want to add into the mix, by all means. A lot of uh, Trump transition team stuff today, some interesting stories about how he may uh, involve himself in the economy. But, But I actually wanted to start with something else, because if I don't, I feel like this will get lost in the in the shuffle, uh, if I if I don't get into this now, I have a, I have a feeling that this will not get attention from anybody, um, or you know will sort of fall by the wayside. There's been this hysteria out there. You've certainly seen it about fake news, and this has become something that everyone is talking about. And it's it's almost like there's a one sheet. You know, there's sort of a rundown of journalist talking points. And it's, you know, talk about fake news is right at the very top, um, discussing all the different fake news outlets. And there have been serious, quote, serious newspapers that have looked into the issue of fake news. There are serious newspapers uh, that have published pieces on this with the suggestion, of course, that fake news such as they describe, such as, you know, they get to decide what it is. Uh, may have turned the election. And in fact, there's a, an, a, an additional level to this that perhaps Russian trolls, so sort of Russian fake news uh, and propaganda efforts online, the digital world, could have played a factor in the election. Now, this has, of course, the twofold purpose of, on the one hand, making very sad because they're very, very sad, very sad Democrats feel better about the fact that Hillary Clinton lost, right? Because it, she didn't lose because the Democratic Party is uh, adrift. She didn't lose because the Democratic Party no longer mirrors or, or no longer supports positions that a majority of the American people, or at least a majority of the American voting population, or I know we're going to get into the discussion over the popular vote so whatever a majority of those voting in states that are necessary for the electoral college victory to be the president of the united states doesn't matter none of that matters what matters to them is that there was really cheating that went on in one way or another and in this case it's cheating through the news there's also the recount efforts that have been happening that i think trump has gained votes in them but those are also just all a scam and 
you know, Jill Stein sees an opportunity to raise a lot of money and get her name out there. I mean, this is the most press Jill Stein got over the entirety of the campaign comes afterwards uh, or, or over the whole primary season and, and the general election. It's with her efforts to raise money and have these recounts. Uh, but I remember talking to you about so fake news is a big thing. So on the one hand, it makes them feel better about it. And also, on the other hand, it, it undermines the Trump presidency, too. It undermines those who voted for Trump. Really, the message is supposed to be your uh, you who vote for Trump or you who are Republicans who now have Donald Trump as your uh, president elect are too stupid to know the difference between real news and fake news. And basically, you're a bunch, you being Trump voters, a bunch of big dumb, dumb dummies. And it's all your fault. And this is why you have all these stories out there about fake news. Of course, it's always existed. Right. I mean, this is not a new concept, and also it is um, not the first time by any stretch of the imagination that people have tried to influence an election with either stories that aren't true or – I mean, you go back even to the earliest days uh, of this republic, and there were scurrilous charges and accusations leveled about any number of, of candidates. Uh, go back and read some of the things that were said about Jefferson um, and Adams and – you know, name a founding father, and they're you know wanted to be king. You know, in all kinds of stuff. You know, Hamilton. People said stuff about Hamilton too. Uh, so fake news is not a new thing. What's fascinating to me though is that the Washington Post did this big story, and I talked about it here in the show, which is why I wanted to revisit it. They did this big story on how uh, how much of an impact and how widespread these sort of fake news mills really were that they're a big deal, that they really do matter, and that they really did perhaps change the outcome of the election. And they did this whole breakdown of how there's all these sites that get so much traffic, and they're just putting false stories out there, and that's why people just didn't have the good sense to vote for Hillary Clinton. Well, the Washington Post had this editor's note, which just is just, you know, just sort of popped in, appended to a story, that they did. And this was a big story. I mean, this was their um, uh, this was their sort of takedown of the whole fake news uh, effort that, as you know, is supposed to be at least partially responsible for Trump's victory and Russia's behind it. And the Russian menace now is you know, allied with this Trump White House and all that other stuff. Here's the editor's note that I wanted to share with you. Uh, the Washington Post, I'll read it to you. The Washington Post on November 24th published a story on the work of four sets of researchers who have examined what they say are Russian propaganda efforts to undermine American democracy and interests. One of them was Prop or Not, a group that insists on public anonymity, which issued a report identifying more than 200 websites that, in its view, wittingly or unwittingly, published or echoed Russian propaganda. A number of those sites have objected to being included in proper knots list, and some of the sites, as well as others not on the list, have publicly challenged the group's methodology and conclusions. The post, which did not name any of the sites, does not itself vouch for the validity of proper knots findings regarding any individual media outlet, nor did the article purport to do so. Since the publication of the post story, proper knot has removed some sites from its list. Now, I know that's you're like, why are you reading this whole thing? What they're really saying is, yeah, we decided that we would write this story. And one of the research outfits that we relied on is anonymous. 
How often do they give that? By the way, how how often do you think you're allowed to cite a source that is a, uh, th- that is a, a research you know organization, but it gets to remain anonymous? I mean, is, is this a a basement troll somewhere? I mean, who, who's running prop or not? Who are these people or person? We don't get to know. Insists on public anonymity. So, you know, could this be like some friend of John Podesta's who's running this group, you know, prop or not? Who knows? We don't know. We're not allowed to know. And they identified 200 websites. And the Washington Post just went along with all of this, didn't do its own research, just found some online anonymous research group cited it in its reporting and since people have asked questions and since some of those websites have come out and said this is this is you know nonsense this is bullcrap proper the research outfit the anonymous research outfit ha- has removed some of those sites so clearly not standing behind its research but this is remarkable that the Washington Post which is you know one of the biggest uh, biggest newspapers in the country would do a major story. I believe it was a front page story. I mean, I read all the stuff online, but I think it was sort of their front page main banner story and use research to support this conclusion that is just completely flimsy and not not verified and not sourced goes to show you that it, it really wasn't about getting to the bottom of Russian propaganda efforts during our election. It was... Um, It was about continuing this narrative that it was the misinformed public that handed Trump the election. And not only were they misinformed, they're puppets of Russia. This is really vile stuff. This is really underhanded, even for something like The Washington Post. And this will just sort of slide through now. They they will not do they they're not retracting the story. They're just adding this editor's note. Uh, but you can see that they, they were looking for anybody who was willing to support this theory that there were these Russian sites. By the way, how much of a, of a real influence do these sites have? These different memes about, I mean, does anyone really think that someone changed their mind? W- were there any Hillary voters that saw some weird news story about Hillary and decided, you know what, I'm going to vote for somebody else? I, I mean, I've, I've seen zero evidence of that. If the whole thesis here which is what it seems to be, is uh, that the Russian propaganda effort may have tilted the election towards Trump. Can't we find some voters somewhere who at least will come out and say, will attach their name and face to it and say, yeah, I saw that. I, I don't even know what this, what some of these fake news stories are that they're talking about. And I read news all day long. They're talking about some stuff that was shared on Facebook that was, you know, went, went sort of viral or was, what does that even mean? This is, but again, it's part of the overall narrative. It's part of the storyline that Trump couldn't win legitimately. So the only way he was able to win was by having help from Russian behind the scenes, sort of KGB style uh, disinformation operatives who were running these. It's just, it's a conspiracy. It's interesting. They always label the other side conspiracy theorists. And look, there are conspiracy theorists on the right, but this is a conspiracy theory. Uh, this is this is nonsense. The, the hacking of Podesta's emails and those releases. Yeah, that's that's an active measure. That was a real thing that happened. But that fake news had any real what, f- fake news influenced the voting patterns of a few hundred thousand people, specifically in Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. I don't think so. And when you see the shoddy research that was done by some of the newspapers that were really pushing this story hard, uh, 
it's just flimsy. It's indefensible. And it's because they were not looking for they were not looking for evidence to support a conclusion. I'm sorry. They were not looking for evidence so that they could then draw a conclusion. They were looking for evidence to support a conclusion they had already made. The media bias at work once again. 888-900-3393. Team sponsor this half hour is Super Beats. Super Beats, Super Beats. They're super beady. Uh, they're a nutrition gold mine. They're rich in vitamins, minerals, electrolytes, and dietary nitrates. Nitric oxide, by the way, which is also something that dietary nitrates convert to in the body, help boost circulation and maintain healthy blood pressure levels. Now, you can get all this from eating beets, but how about something easier and more delicious than beets? You get the benefits of three whole beets in just one teaspoon of super beets with no beet taste. And beet juice is so potent that it turned up in a magazine article with illegal performance enhancers like EPO, giving them the nickname the ultimate performance enhancing veggie. Performance enhancing veggie. P-E-V. Never. Yeah. Check that one out. Exciting. I feel confident telling you that Super Beats is awesome because when I've tried it, I get a huge boost of energy. So check it out yourself. Uh, Call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. Get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you feel with your first free canister, guaranteed, or your money back. 800-311-4367 or teambuckbeats.com. 800-311-4367 or teambuckbeats.com. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Other than the fact that you see a a fair amount of uh, people who are apparently upset at the notion of uh, a handful of former generals in Trump's cabinet, which I think is an interesting objection to have. These are people that were senior most officers of the United States military, but there are, there are concerns now that they're no longer generals that they, I think I saw someone on Twitter say, why don't we just call this a, a junta? I mean, really? Uh, this is like now military, we're heading towards military dictatorship because Trump is putting generals in, in positions of prominence. Anyway, I think that some of the criticisms that you're seeing about uh, various cabinet uh, cabinet officials or people that run different departments or just senior appointee slots really just come from this place of blind Trump hatred, which is a very real thing. Um, and, and even <laughs> this is one that uh, got my attention, even the small business administration uh, pick. And by the way, let's all right, let's take a step back for a second. Let's be honest. How many of us even knew that? There was a small business administration to begin with. 
um, how many of us knew that that was something that had to be picked by Trump. Now, the, the Small Business Administration, those of you who want to know, or it had to be picked by the president, um, has an office in every state. This is from CNBC, and it helps with financing and training for small businesses and entrepreneurs. People are making a lot of jokes because Linda McMahon, who helped found the WWE, which used to be the WWF, and then John, did they get rid of it because of the World World Wildlife Federation? Yeah, they got sued because of the World Wildlife Federation. Okay, so that's what I thought happened there. And the WWE, and this, anyway, she helped found that with uh, Vince McMahon. And it's worth, uh, let's see what we have here. It's worth a billion dollars, $1.5 billion today, market value as a publicly traded company. So she built a, helped build a very valuable media property. And she's going to be somebody who's leading. Now, look, I, I know that there's video of, I've seen some of the screenshots where she's got like a microphone and she's out there on the stage or uh, not the stage. What do you call it? The, um, uh, where do the wrestlers, the ring. Thank you. Uh, she's out there in the ring with some wrestlers and it's kind of funny, but then again, Trump has been, <laughs> Trump has been involved in so that Trump is actually in the WWE hall of fame, which is a thing. Um, but people are trying to get, uh, they're trying to get all worked up over, uh, Linda McMahon leading the small business administration. She created a very successful business from the ground up. Isn't that actually the kind of experience that you would want for this sort of a thing? I, I know she also gave a lot of money to a Trump pack, and but this is that's sort of standard for a lot of these government jobs is that people that either raise money or give money get them. But I, I just think it's interesting. I mean, the Democrats. Well, for, first of all, you've got to just look at this as it's primarily just Trump rage, right? Trump everything Trump does is bad. They were even thinking uh, a day or two ago that Democrats would give Mattis a hard time, uh, that they would give Marine, uh, you know, retired Marine Corps General Mattis difficulty with becoming Secretary of Defense. And then I think it dawned upon them that uh, smearing somebody uh, publicly in hearings or, or creating any kind of uh, obstacles for somebody as revered in military and non-military circles as Mattis, but particularly inside the military, even for the Democrats, that's a little too much. That would look a little too bad. So my understanding is they've decided to back off on that one. Uh, but what you see is that there's a real belief in, in a lot of Democrats, I think, that to serve in government or, or the best people to serve in government are going to be people that have primarily been in government. Right? That's what you want. You want somebody who is going to be telling those in the free in in the uh, free market in the in the sort of real economy not the public sector economy uh telling those what to do and the small business administration uh secretary here is somebody who's going to be um or serve as, as the head of the small business administration who has real experience doing this you'd think that would be better right she can peel back regulation she understands what hurts small businesses and she's been in the fight uh, in a real way. But for a lot of Democrats, and look, it's also an ob- obviously just an opportunity to make fun of it, another Trump pick and to make fun of what's, you know, what the administration's doing and all the rest of it. But for a lot of people, I think, watching this, they, they kind of think to themselves, wow, Democrats really do believe that if you've just been on the sort of public payroll for you know, a couple of decades, that's what makes you really effective. Uh, to have actually been in the fight and then to have experience that translates so that when you're in a position of authority, when you're in a position to 
do things to help people in actual industry, uh, you can apply lessons learned from your own experiences. And, you know, that that's not how they view these things, or at least in this instance, in these cases with Donald Trump and his appointees, the cabinet that he's putting together. Uh, and I've said that he he deserves at least an, an, an open mind from Republicans. Right. The cabinet that he's putting together is strong. This is a strong cabinet. I mean, the the only one that I think is still a little controversial for some people is is General Flynn. Um, but you know what? I, 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 it doesn't bother me. I, I don't see a problem. I mean, his son got fired for that very dumb tweet, but General Flynn himself seems to be somebody that Trump trusts on these issues and certainly understands who the enemy is. But anyway, Linda McMahon. Founded the WWE and it's going to be running the Small Business Administration and Democrats are freaking out. We'll talk about some other stuff in just a sec. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. So here's a fantastic pick, by the way. Scott Pruitt called here the New York Times a climate change denialist is going to be Trump's choice for the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, which I first learned about from Walter Peck in Ghostbusters, who is the bad guy. This is why Ghostbusters, as an aside, is really a conservative movie. They're small businessmen. It's a startup. They're capitalists, right? Remember, the, they go after Slimer in the hotel, and he's like $5,000, and the guy who's the hotel uh, manager is like, $5,000? I had no idea it would be that much. I won't pay it. And then they threaten to release Slimer. And yeah, so that's, uh, they, they are capitalists. They are small business owners. They are entrepreneurs, uh, the Ghostbusters, that is. And then the EPA comes along out of nowhere and is like uh, giving them all kinds of problems. And, you know, he's like possibly noxious waste, uh, you know, all this stuff about the containment unit. And, you know, Dr. Vankman doesn't handle it that well, I would say. You know, he probably could have smoothed things over with the EPA guy, but he didn't like the EPA guy and his little three piece suit and the whole thing. So he's, they got into it. And, uh, yeah, they, uh, then came back with the cops and they shut down the containment unit and all, all the ghosts were let loose. So EPA is the bad guy. And look, it's, um, it's funny to me because there's not really a lot of disagreement or there shouldn't be a lot of gray area when you're talking about the EPA and um, you're talking about how uh, you want clean water and right. These movies. Um, what, what was the movie with? I can't remember the movie with. Uh, no, there's yeah, there's Aaron Brockovich, of course. That's one, but there's also one with the guy who is from. Uh, gosh, I'm sorry, I'm completely blanking on his name. Uh, he's in, and I'm blanking. On, he's in. I was going to say Point Break. That's not the movie. Um, anyway, I can't. I can't remember. He's a famous actor. I can't remember. But he's in a movie where he's like a, a lawyer. He's I think kind of an ambulance chaser, and he gets involved in some clean water thing and. Uh, uh, is it a civil action or something like that? I think it's called a civil action, something like that. Uh, and, you know, he's trying to prevent 
people from getting horrible diseases from dirty water. I mean, nobody wants there's no pro dirty water faction. I mean, this also ties into the whole Dakota Access Pipeline thing. Um, Nobody wants seepage of chemicals into water that's going to harm. Uh, it's going to harm, you know, men, women, and children, babies. I mean, that's there's no constituency in favor of that. It's just a question of what's reasonable and what's a proven risk versus a sort of either theoretical or made up risk. Uh, and this is where you get in. This is where the debate somehow always goes off the rails. People say, "Oh, well, you know, you don't want clean air and clean water." It's like, no, no one wants there to be a tremendous amount of of uh, of smog and. We know what pollution, if you've ever, ever been in a city, I mean, I've been in some cities because of my previous work before media, I've been in some uh, places where you can really kind of smell and and feel and maybe even in the air kind of taste, well, that's gross, uh, the fact that they burn waste, uh, they burn trash, they burn, and it just creates acrid smoke all over the place. And, you know, all sorts of chemicals and things, you know, burning plastic and it's in the air and it is gross. I mean, the air quality is terrible. And I, you know, those of you who have spent some time in China, I have friends who talk to me about being in some of the cities there and you can just see the uh, buildup on the walls. No, no, there's no constituency in favor of that. Republicans don't actually want to see rivers full of toxic waste and. You know, it reminds me of the old cartoon that, uh, or wait, no, there's a couple of them. There's Captain Planet, which was, uh, which was pretty lame, but he's our hero and he's going to take pollution down to zero. Um, but I, I don't really know. You know, he just was fighting polluters. It was a bad card. It's, it's no DuckTales, I'll tell you that. And then there's also the Toxic Avenger, which is much more of a sci-fi thing where a guy who sort of gets toxic waste on him uh, goes around and, I don't know, he fights people with a mop. He, he looks kind of, he looks a little weird, uh, to put it mildly. And of course, there's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles who are who are turtles that get exposed to toxic waste. And then also a rat that's exposed to toxic waste happens to know ninjutsu because he was the pet of a ninja master in Japan. I don't know. Uh, Ninja Turtles. I love I love Ninja Turtles for years. And looking back in retrospect, it's like an acid trip, man. The whole thing is crazy. You got some giant turtles doing backflips and a rat that's teaching them how to do uh, karate, although technically it's ninjutsu, but you know what I mean. Close enough. Uh, nobody wants toxic waste in their water. Nobody wants their food to be dirty. That's, but should we destroy the coal industry because of CO2? Should we uh, put massive inhibitions on fossil fuel exploration, exploration or even just export because we're so concerned about CO2 in the air? CO2 naturally you know, is, is in the air. Plants need it. You know, plants take in uh, CO2 and spit out oxygen. Um, well, I guess theoretically they don't spit out anything, but you know what I mean. Photosynthesis and all that stuff. Freshman bio. There we go. Nobody wants nobody wants dirty water, but the, the CO2 in the air thing is just, it's crazy. Uh, this is some, cons- this is a conspiracy theory, or th- this is a, a theory that's uh, completely unproven, that they keep changing the data. I had that guy's uh, editorial, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal a couple days ago, where he talked about how he's totally on board for all the climate change stuff, except he knows that the storm's getting worse. Uh, that, that That's a lie. And for that one deviation from the climate change orthodoxy, they wanted to destroy him. Uh, now we see that the EPA, which 
was really the way the, the only way that Obama was going to get the kind of environmental regulations that he wanted was through executive fiat and, and through the EPA, right? EPA is an executive branch agency. So Obama is going or Obama was able to use them. And there was a Supreme Court case and it went in favor of the EPA where they can essentially regulate because, you know, air goes between states. <laughs> it's almost like it's really an extension of the interstate commerce clause because, you know, air moves around. Um, all states fall under the EPA's federal mandate about how much CO2 they're putting in the air. And there's this whole complex way they're trying to create limitations on. It's just it's just insane. And it means that your uh, energy prices are going up and it means that there's all sorts of uh, regulatory hurdles that companies have to get around. And meanwhile, despite the Obama administration's best efforts, you have had something of an energy revolution in this country because of shale oil and we are america is an energy superpower uh, and i remember you know decades ago people were so oh mid-east oil and america we're going to run out of oil and all these bad things are going to happen and now we find out that no we've got plenty of oil in fact we have a lot of oil here and we have a lot of natural gas here and we have so much that we're, we're exporting a lot around the world and i i think I should check the numbers on this. We, If you add our uh, shale oil and our, our natural gas, if you add sort of our fossil fuel uh, exports, we're definitely like in the top three, I think, for the world. Um, and I, I'll, I'll check the numbers in the break and make sure I'm giving you the, the, the straight facts on that one. But so you got this guy Pruitt, who they call a climate change denialist. And, and you know, by the way, denialist is intentionally, they use that word, not skeptic, you'll notice, and uh, not even opponent, which would be pretty strong, right? You're a climate change, or I guess a climate change opponent, maybe, maybe it sounds like you're fighting against climate change. But uh, there are many ways they could, you know, they, they could phrase this. But they use denialist so that it conjures in the mind or there's an association with Holocaust denial. And if you think that that's extreme, there are some people who have come out, I mean, meaning that, that my interpretation of this is goes too far there are some who have come out and have have likened it to holocaust and i mean they'll actually go out and say that um that that's it, it's just a it's a horrific and immoral um refusal to accept evidence and in this case they say that it even has the consequences of perhaps causing a future holocaust and that we will all die because of these uh lack because of the lack of action lack of regulations on climate change so you've got this uh, Mr. Pruitt, who is an architect, according to the New York Times here, of the legal battle against Mr. Obama's climate change policies, who's going to be head of the EPA. And he has uh, put it, I mean, he, he's going to be a guy who looks at these regulations. And this is where you get into undoing the Obama legacy very quickly. I mean, this is why the Democrats, they are right to worry on some policy issues because there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going to happen. I mean, EPA regulations are going to get rolled back. Um, I do think there'll be changes in the tax code, especially I think the corporate tax rate. They will push that through. Um, you know, the Second Amendment is going to be robustly defended and expanded. And I mean, there are things that are, def that are definitely going to happen. Uh, there are a few places where the battleground, I think, is going to be more complicated and we could see Trump waiver. Immigration and, and Obamacare, I think, is going to be harder than than people realize um, the the replacing of it, the, the whole thing. I'm not saying it won't happen. It's just that's going to be kind of messy. And immigration is 
a word that covers a whole lot of stuff, right? It's workplace enforcement. It's E-Verify. It's the wall. It's visa overstays. It's deportations. You know, immigration is a huge category unto itself. And so whether Trump follows through on all of his promises there or some of them, we will have to see. But on the EPA, um, you're going to have somebody who they're going to say that he's a he's in the pocket of uh, big business. And they're going to say that this is going to lead to dirty drinking water for your kids and all sorts of scaremongering is going to happen. Um, but keep in mind, these are the same people. Those who would say that are the same people who think that it's OK or in some cases would be willing to even criminalize climate change denial, you know, to, to criminalize opposition to climate. I mean, just ideological opposition to climate change. That's how invested in this stuff emotionally and psychologically they are. It, it really, they do lose their minds over it, I have to say. I mean, it's just they go to some other place. Uh, I always recall when Michael Crichton was, you know, he wrote books and, and he sat down for an interview. I think it was, maybe it was with Charlie Rose. And talking about how he had tackled many controversial issues, abortion, euthanasia, uh, genetic testing, um, cloning, I mean, all sorts of things that that really do get people uh, energized, you know, emotionally and and very involved in the debate. He did all that stuff. And he said it wasn't until climate change that friends turned their backs on him because he was he was a skeptic. Uh, Friends turned their backs on him and he was receiving death threats and he became at least for a short while, hated. I mean, the guy was a wildly successful novelist. Although I do, I want to see the old version of Westworld that he wrote and directed because the current version, eh, not as great as people want to believe it is. Those of you who watch HBO know what I'm talking about. But the climate change thing gets the gets these leftists completely freaked out. And the fact that this Pruitt guy is going to be head of the EPA is a real signal to them that, you know, there's a new sheriff in town. So that means that the old days when Obama could just sort of give a speech and direct the EPA to do stuff that harms businesses and gives no real benefit. I mean, I'm not up late at night worried about CO2 in the air. You know, if Pruitt all of a sudden allows toxic waste dumping in, in reservoirs that are used for public drinking water. Yeah. You know, I'll be out there on the picket line too, but it's not going to happen. Just like with the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, it's not going to stop any of this stuff from coming up out of the ground. So it doesn't matter from a CO2 perspective. And it's nowhere near the actual Native American reservation. I mean, it's, it's just all emotionalism. It's, it's not rational. And that's what they push. Um, team, I want to hear from you. 888-900-3393 on those lines. You are uh, going to light them up, I hope. And we're going to have some fantastic guests. And we're going to keep rocking on the show. I'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. So, team, uh, I raised some questions about why Donald Trump would meet with uh, would meet with Al Gore in Trump Tower to talk about climate change. <laughs> Given who he's nominated to run the EPA, it seems like this is yet another moment where there's an understanding that Trump has that he loses nothing by looking like he'll at least consult with the other side. 
It's interesting, isn't it? That he doesn't really get much credit for this. Did Obama meet with people that were wildly opposed to uh, policies that he had stated during the campaign? Was he meeting with you know re- Republican thought leaders uh, or conservative thought leaders on how to grow the economy? I don't. Re- I say this in all honesty. I certainly don't recall that. Maybe it happened, but I feel like I'd remember. Uh, I'm not saying that Trump is necessarily even going to act on any of the advice that. He gets from these individuals. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I do think uh, I do think that it looks like he's being, as he said, he would open minded. It looks like he will listen to the other side. It looks like he's willing to uh, take a moment and hear what they have to say. And this gives him a degree, perhaps, of credibility or should uh, give him a, a degree of credibility when he finally makes decisions on some of these issues. Leonardo DiCaprio snuck into Trump Tower as well. I shouldn't say snuck in, obviously he was invited, but uh, he hung out with the Donald and Ivanka to talk about climate change. Look, I guess if I were worth like a couple hundred million dollars from being an actor, I'd want to fly around on my private jet and lecture everybody about how I'm trying to save the planet, right? Because what else could really match the needs of your ego. Like, what else could go to that that level other than I'm 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 literally trying to save the planet here, people. Yeah, I flew her on a private jet, but I, I am your savior. And by the way, did you see Wolf of Wall Street and Titanic and yada yada, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Uh, Wolf of Wall Street was 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 good, but not great. It was too long. Also, very very few movies should be three hours long. I mean, like Braveheart, The Godfather, very few. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. We're joined now by Glenn Reynolds. He is a law professor and a columnist for USA Today. He also blogs at instapundent.com. And his USA Today article we're going to discuss is Trump is FDR with the fireside tweets. What's up, Glenn? Good to have you. Hey, great to be here. All right, so why is just talk to us about this a bit? Why is Trump FDR with fireside tweets? Well, you know, one of the interesting things about FDR is that uh, he got a lot of loyalty from people, not so much from his policies, because honestly, he ran on a very different platform than he governed on, and he kind of made it up as he went along, but because a lot of ordinary Americans who were hurting felt like he cared about them. Uh, he spoke to them directly in his fireside chats, he talked about their interests. Uh, and they felt an emotional connection with him and a sense that somebody was looking out for them that really sort of transcended any specific policy stuff. And I think a lot of that's true with Trump, too. Um, the white working class uh, supporters in particular, and the working class in general, black, white, whatever, uh, has been treated pretty badly by the people that run this country for quite a while and treated not only badly in terms of policy, but even more so with disdain. Uh, and I think that Trump, by treating 
working class people with respect and acting like he cares about them has really forged a kind of an emotional connection uh, that may turn out to be reminiscent to what FDR managed to do. So in the in the carrier deal, uh, people have been picking this apart now, and I know Trump has had some back and forth with a, a union boss who says that it wasn't as many jobs as Trump said it was, and that it's, it's a bit exaggerated. But regardless, it seems to be a public relations victory for Trump, I mean, because as you say, it makes it seem like he cares about individuals' actual jobs, um, and whether it's a thousand jobs or seven hundred jobs doesn't really matter. The, the messaging is still the same, and these are exactly the kinds. Uh, these are exactly the kinds of employees and and people that are just working for a living that Trump was saying all along on the campaign trail. He's going to help out. No, I mean I think that's absolutely right. And you know he made that specific promise uh, about Carrier. Uh, President Obama actually mocked him about it and said, "How's he going to do it? You got a magic wand?" Uh, and then Trump went and did it. And I think that that looks pretty good. And it does send a symbol of caring. And, you know, there's a piece in the New York Post today by Selena Zito, who's a reporter who, you know, really got out and talked to people all over flyover country and all the little towns in a way that very few reporters did during this election. And she says even the anti-Trump working class voters are starting to have second thoughts. Uh, And it's partly because they feel like Trump really has gone to work for them. And it's also because the Democrats uh, and sort of the pundit class have doubled down in their contempt uh, for working class people. Uh, basically saying, well, if you people gave us Trump, then screw you. Uh, so it's really uh, driving people into Trump's arms. Uh, and I think that as long as the Democrats keep yammering about fake news and uh, you know deplorables and all that stuff, uh, that's going to continue as well. What do you think about the criticism that are being leveled about about winners and you know picking winners and losers? Now, this is something you're hearing both from Democrats who want to undermine this sort of Trump pre-presidential victory, as well as a, a fair amount of conservatives who say that th- this sets a bad precedent. I, I feel like there's uh, a, a moment in time now where people are starting to starting to sense that the the perfect should not be the enemy of the good, or rather, yeah, free market principles are fantastic. But for example, is is a tax uh, is a tax break for a company? Is that cronyism, or are we opposed to taxes and we want there to be tax breaks? I mean, it, it seems to me like there's a, a moment where we can have a discussion about how the market is not a completely level playing field right now. And so, well, go ahead. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, talk about picking winners from Democrats is pretty rich, considering that the, uh, that's been Obama's policy right, for of years. It's been complete cronyism. And, you know, Solyndra... Uh, was $700 million. Uh, this was $7 million. It was 1% of a Solyndra. And unlike Solyndra, actually did, like, save some jobs. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, I think Democrats uh, have no basis to complain about this. Uh, their only complaint is that it's somebody else doing it uh, and not them. Uh, I mean, I do think there's a much more legitimate sort of, you know, conservative libertarian criticism about picking winners. Uh, but, you know, uh, what Trump actually has said is, uh, once my tax policy goes through, once I lower the corporate tax rate, uh, and once I make it possible for companies to bring a lot of money back from overseas, uh, everybody in their right mind is going to want to have a business here anyway. Uh, so the carrier thing is maybe more of a one-off uh, than, than the way he plans to do business all along. But now, if that will turn out to be true, it will be great. If, in fact, it doesn't, then it won't be. I mean, the tax code is, is 70,000 pages not because it's trying to make the playing field level for everybody, right? I mean, this, this is part of 
I, I think on, on the one hand, you have Trump putting people in places like we were talking about the last hour, the Small Business Administration, to peel back regulations, the EPA to peel back regulations, to create that more uh, level playing field. But in the meantime, uh, there, are, is all, there are also a lot of imbalances. I mean, w- one thing that I mean, you, you see it. I, I see it all the time on, on the media side of things. Uh, there are a lot of legacy institutions and not just regulations, but even laws that support certain people in the marketplace. And that is there's current government intervention all over the place, what I'm trying to say. And I think it's interesting that there's this this sort of freak out when Trump engages in a form of government intervention. And yet that's happening all the time already. Uh, it's it, well, that's right. That's right. And, you know, Trump has never pretended to be a libertarian or even really a conservative. I mean, what he really is. Uh, is a sort of 70s Rust Belt Democrat, more in the mold of, you know, Scoop Jackson or uh, maybe even Dick Gephardt. And that's, uh, you know, and, and his policies are mostly in line with that. Now, 70s Rust Belt Democrats were conservative, but they what the advantage they had over most current uh, Democrats in the political class is they actually did like America and they liked the American working class. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's why I say I think Trump may be the new FDR in that regard, that he has a chance to forge a real bond with a segment of society that feels like it has not only been treated badly in an objective way, but just looked down upon. And I think that contempt, uh, which I guess started back in the 70s, maybe with Archie Bunker and all in the family, uh, that contempt for the working class from sort of the betters, uh, openly expressed and proudly and smugly expressed, is really the poison that's been in the American political system for a long time. And I think Trump is, is helping to draw that poison out by giving people a sense that somebody cares. Yeah, it's it's seems to me that uh, a lot of the sort of free marketeers and and free trade advocates out there, whether they mean to or not, they, they sort of are telling the particularly the, the white working class, but just the working class in this country in general. Well, yeah, you know, maybe you don't have a job, but you know your flat screen TV from Walmart's really cheap, and you know you can get a pair of jeans for ten bucks. And th- yeah, there are benefits, but there's also a, a sense of identity and belonging and purpose that comes from gainful employment uh and and if and if the, the trade-off for a lot of people is going to be you have cheaper goods but you know you don't have a job here well that's something that should at least be addressed i mean i, I think that people want to want to believe that political leadership in this country will do something uh with regard to making that situation better if they can well i think it's funny that like in our political class for that matter our journalists uh, and such these are people who get like, probably 99 percent of their self-image from their jobs and yet they can't imagine that anybody else would feel the same way. Yeah, it's true. Uh, they, they seem to think that, and, or, or also that they should just, you know, people should just retrain for other jobs or positions. It's, that's a lot easier said than done. I don't, I don't know a lot yeah. of journalists who want to become welders. No, and I don't know a lot of people who'd want to hire them if they did. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the retraining thing, I mean, the big problem is there's a lot of research that says that the retraining just doesn't work that uh, people retrain for jobs and typically wind up, nonetheless, working for you know, half the wages they got before their factory closed. Uh, so I think that's, that's kind of a, you know, it, it's a sort of solution people like to wave their hands at to make it look like they've done something about the problem, but uh, it doesn't. Now, it, maybe there's not that much we can do. I mean, automation is still coming on. I guess we could do like New Jersey and, you know, ban self-service gas so people have jobs pumping gas and stuff. Uh, but I'm, I'm not necessarily suggesting Trump's policies are going to work. Uh, FDR's policies were actually disastrous. Uh, nonetheless, the fact that he looks like he cares politically is a really big deal. 
Yeah, because when you look at some of the the jobs programs, Obama likes to talk, likes to talk a lot about uh, green jobs, for example. Uh, that doesn't really make I mean, unless you happen to be in an area of the country where those green jobs, which are almost across the border, subsidized by government in one form or another. Uh, if you're a Rust Belt person who works in a factory, if, if you're some of the and, and again, there's the people that we believe decided this last election in favor of Trump. You don't really want to hear about green jobs, you know, and, and the sharing economy and Uber and all that stuff. Well, unless you live in New York, San Fran or you know, a, a big city, um, that doesn't necessarily do it for you either. And so e- to your point, e- even if Trump at a sort of a macroeconomic level isn't. Uh, is, isn't making sound decisions for the long run. In the short run, at least it's, it does speak to people and they care and it matters. And, you know, what's funny is Barack Obama once got that because early on uh, he actually wanted to bring back manly jobs for working class men and, and push back against his uh, advisors who said they should be steered into jobs like nursing aides and uh, other stuff. He said that's actually women's work and they need to do something that fits how they define themselves as men. And this didn't go over well with the Democrats, and the feminists pushed back and didn't want the stimulus money going to uh, jobs that would employ men. So most of it got diverted to uh, health services and social services and um, basically going to women. But Obama's instincts on that were actually sound, and uh, he let that go. But I, I think Trump has more confidence in his instincts here. How do you think, uh, in terms of the, the positions that, that Trump has, I mean, obviously some of them have to go through confirmation and such, but the picks he's made... Uh, for the economy, for the regulatory agencies. Uh, how do you think that's shaping up? I'm pretty happy with uh, a lot of them. I'm certainly very happy with the Mattis appointment, which actually seems to be pretty bipartisanly uh, approved. Uh, but the interesting thing is, overall, he's, you know, a lot of people thought he was going to come in and basically uh, uh, be a false flag and be a Democrat, but this is probably the most conservative executive branch we've seen in decades that he's putting together on all kinds of issues, from you know the environment with the EPA pick, to homeland security and immigration, to, to small business, to, I mean, you name it. Uh, and I think that uh, if he plays the Ben Carson right card right, the HUD appointment will actually help him make some inroads, which he's already starting to make, among the black working class, uh, which has got to be the Democrats' worst nightmare. How, is, how would that work? You know, war game that for me a little bit. How would that work? I mean, Ben Carson as HUD, as HUD uh, secretary... There, of course, every appointment that Trump makes, even Mattis got some pushback, and they said that Democrats might not relax that seven-year separation from military rule for him. And then they go, okay, okay, we, we won't put up a fight, right? But even with Mattis, there was a little moment there where they thought they might stir up some trouble. With Ben Carson, they're saying, oh, he, has, he doesn't have government experience, and, and clearly Democrats are opposed to it because they're just opposed to Trump. How could Carson be useful to the administration in the way that you're describing well, HUD does a lot of work in poor neighborhoods, which are frequently black, and uh, it is an easy thing to do to make them feel like the administration cares by actually helping people get jobs. And there was actually a really terrific piece uh, in the Christian Science Monitor just a couple of days ago uh, by Patrick Johnson there uh, on the growth of black working class support for Trump since the election. And uh, I think that, you know, if you, it goes back to the same thing. There's a substantial number of black people who'd rather have a job than a check. And to the extent that, uh, that Carson and Trump can help them get that and feel like that's what they want, uh, he, they can peel off some votes. And that's got to be, you know, the Democrats' worst nightmare. We were just talking about Pruitt, by the way, as the EPA pick. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I saw somebody on Tucker Carlson saying he, was, he shouldn't be pick, the pick because he'd sued the EPA. And I thought that was sort of a funny message for the Democrats to send. That's like saying you should never appoint somebody as attorney general who's defended a criminal defendant.
Yeah, that, they're making the case by trying not to make the case there for why Pruitt <laughs> so would be a, a good uh, a good EPA head. Uh, Glenn Reynolds is a law professor. He's a columnist for USA Today. Also, his blog is instapundent.com. Check out his latest on USA Today. Glenn, great to have you. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. Sponsor this half-hour team is Silencer Shop. If you've never thought about it before, I'm asking you to give it some consideration. A silencer for your firearm is a fantastic accessory, and Silencer Shop is the place to go. They've got the best prices with the best service. When you purchase a silencer from silencershop.com, you simply pick it up at a local dealer with no transfer fees and no shipping. Uh, A silencer in your firearm offers many advantages, such as better accuracy and reduced recoil. And when shooting with a silencer, shooting becomes a more social sport because it's easier to communicate. You can have more fun, enjoy the environment around you more. And plus, it looks cool. So you should really check it out. Silencershop.com is the place to go. The staff there will help you out. You can call them, email them, check out the testimonials. They'll make sure that you are squared away. You go through the process as quickly as possible, and you will be good to go. Maybe just in time for Christmas, or I don't know how long the process takes, but... Hopefully soon. Uh, SilencerShop.com. Again, SilencerShop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. And we will be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Show. President Obama was interviewed on CNN last night talking about his legacy. It's pretty much what you're going to hear about for the next few weeks from Obama. There's really not. It's kind of amazing. There's really not that much time left. It's been eight years. I, I think back to when Obama won that election. I was in the CIA. I was overseas during the election. And I just, it's been so long since anybody other than Obama, you know, in my memory at least, since anybody other than Obama was in the White House. I was... I mean, I was 26 when there was a non-Obama president in the White House. It's been a while, eight years. It's kind of amazing when I think about it that way. Uh, so uh, Obama's talking about his legacy. And it's interesting that I, there's going to be some fights over this or some disagreements. I don't know if people are going to fight you know, in, the, in the immediate term. But whether, whether he was a good president or not, how good of a president was he, all that sort of stuff. He had one moment of some uh, some honesty, which I was sort of surprised by. He was speaking to uh, Fareed Zakaria when he said that he underestimated ISIS. Play that clip. Let me ask you if it's possible in your position to be completely honest and say <laughs> the rise of the Islamic State surprised you. It took you by surprise. It took the administration by surprise. The ability of ISIL to initiate major land offenses, that was not on my intelligence radar screen. It's kind of a sort of kind of maybe way to say it there. Uh, first of all, that he insists on still, on still calling it ISIL is, is just, it drives me insane, right? ISIL. Why, why can't we just call it ISIS? Everyone else calls it ISIS except Obama the executive branch, the U.S. government, every uh, news outlet that I see, that no one calls it ISIL except for the administration. And I know that people have said that they're because it's because of Israel. No, I, I really just think it's kind of an arrogance that you know they're saying it the right way. It's just the same reason Obama says ISIL, and you know the the government then does, of course, follows along with the president on this one because 
of the same reasons he says Pakistan and Taliban, you know, because just trying to show us all how sophisticated on these issues of international affairs and, and national security he is. But, uh, yeah, he definitely underestimated ISIL. ISIS, see? That's what happens when you hear it enough. Definitely underestimated them. Uh, I spoke to you yesterday about the uh, operation to take back Mosul. That that city has been in the hands of the Islamic State for two years. Uh, we are going to be hearing once the dust and, and unfortunately, the, the blood finally, bloodshed finally stops, once the dust clears, uh, we're going to be hearing for quite some time about just how much of an atrocity that really was for that city. And one of the major debates that's going to come up about Obama's legacy, and you're going to see this fight over whether the status of forces agreement that George Bush signed was essentially uh, tied Obama's hands. There's nothing he could do because Bush signed this agreement and had this agreement hammered out with the Iraqi government. So when Obama came into office, whoops, well, well, sorry, uh, don't believe that for a second. They used the previous administration's agreement. Remember, they're, they're not bound by it. You know, the new administration come in and say, let's let's renegotiate this. Uh, they use the new administration or the old administration's agreement as the excuse to pull out troops. And now we've more or less got the number of troops that Obama in Iraq that Obama probably would have been able to leave behind and maybe would have stabilized the whole thing and prevented at least. I couldn't have prevented the Syrian civil war, but it definitely could have prevented the jihadist blitzkrieg that came you know, blistering through uh, northern Iraq, seizing cities and towns along the way and eventually Mosul and, and even going well beyond Mosul. I think it's easy to forget now. There's a time when there were Apache gunships, U.S. Apache gunships that were being used uh, within, you know, a 20, 30 minute drive of Baghdad to fend off ISIS fighters who were trying to make a play for Baghdad itself. I mean, that's how bad things got while this uh, commander in chief was at the reins. So I think it's worth noting. Uh, 888-900-3393 team. We will be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team, we're joined now by Kelsey Harkness. She is a writer at the Daily Signal. Kelsey, great to have you. Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell me a bit about Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump and the possibility that together they could end Common Core. What's going on? Well, it's an interesting question about whether Betsy DeVos, Donald Trump, and a Republican administration can end Common Core. We know Common Core has received a lot of pushback uh, from a lot of grassroots polls. But the reality is Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos are very limited in what they can do to end Common Core. Common Core was adopted by the states, of course, at the hand of being coerced by the Obama administration with grants that made it extremely hard, if not impossible, to say no. But Common Core is no longer tied to those federal grants because there was so much pushback against it. And since it's no longer tied, states on their own can exit Common Core uh, by working with state lawmakers and the governor. But the reality is there, there are some things that Betsy DeVos can do at the education department, like ensuring 
that the laws on the books that say the federal government cannot be involved in curriculum decisions, she can make sure those laws are enforced. We can imagine the Obama administration may not be enforcing those. Uh, but the reality is, if, if you live in a state and you want to get your child out of Common Core, you have to do it at the grassroots level and call on your local lawmakers and governors. So, uh, Betsy DeVos, what's her background? I mean, she's going to be Trump's education secretary. What do we know about her? Betsy DeVos is from Michigan, and she has been involved in a number of education nonprofits. She comes from a wealthy family. She's a philanthropist, and uh, she she has worked on the education issue for a while. She served on the board of Jeb Bush's foundation, which is why there's still some questions, questions among conservatives about whether or not she's fully against Common Core, because as we all know, Jeb Bush actually supported the Common Core standards. So I think that there is sort of a trust but verify approach when it comes to Betsy DeVos. People will be watching to see whether or not she does uh, really encourage states to get out of Common Core. But really, her pet project is expected to be school vouchers. And school vouchers, what they are, is they would provide a check to a low-income family that's trapped in a failing school district and say, you know what, your child should not be forced to go to this terrible school which is failing its students. Here's money for you to enroll your child into a a private school of your choice, which is exactly the option that uh, a lot of lawmakers actually choose for their own children, which is ironic that so many of them fight against it. Tell me these six interesting facts. This is a piece uh, Kelsey has up on thedailysignal.com. Tell me about the six interesting facts about Elaine Chao, Trump's pick for transportation secretary. Yes, so Elaine Chao is more, um, she falls more into the establishment Republican uh, group because she has been around Washington, D.C. for a while. Of course, she is married to the Senate majority leader, and the two are sort of a power couple here in Washington, D.C. So I think that conservatives there, uh, she'll be leading the Department of Transportation. She's already uh, led the the Department of Labor under uh, President George W. Bush. And uh, we all heard Trump's promises when it came to infrastructure, improving airports, improving bridges, and and so forth. And she's going to be tasked with carrying that out. So it's certainly a big responsibility for her. But as we see clearly, uh, Trump actually is appointing a very diverse cabinet, Elaine Chao, uh, is, is the first Asian American, uh, was the first Asian American to be appointed under the Bush administration to head a cabinet, and now she'll be the first to head two cabinets. Uh, so I think, I think that she has a big task ahead of her with carrying out, uh, President-elect Trump's infrastructure, infrastructure plans. Uh, but she is very knowledgeable. She's worked at think, think tanks, including the Heritage Foundation, uh, where I'm employed. Uh, but she's very, very uh, experienced when it comes to policy. And Trump's EPA pick, we talked about him a little bit earlier in the show, Pruitt, he has a long history of fighting the EPA. Like what? Yeah, so Pruitt is, I I just published a story in this last night. He's involved and has been involved in a number of lawsuits against the Obama administration's EPA uh, EPA, uh, climate change agenda. Uh, he has challenged the Clean Power Plan, which uh, aims to combat global warming, warming the waters of the United States' role, and 
the renewable fuel standard. He comes from a state that uh, has some of the most energy and oil companies in the country. So uh, he he doesn't deny that he's willing to go out and defend these companies and keep the keep their jobs and ensure that there's more jobs in this. If you Google an article about him right now, I found this interesting. So you're likely to come across a letter that some uh, lefty green groups have accused him of basically taking uh, taking orders from an energy company and special interest groups and using them uh, as part of his uh, formal uh, agenda against the EPA's climate change plans. Well, what's interesting, if you look at the groups who are behind this, the NRDC, which is Leonardo DiCaprio's pet project, the Sierra Club, they did exactly the same thing under the Obama administration. Uh, I wrote about this about two years ago where the uh, these green groups were accused uh, by Republicans of in Congress of colluding with the EPA in a number of manners which uh, they believe greatly compromised uh, the EPA's independent authority on a lot of these environmental issues. And last on the list here, Ben Carson, uh, HUD pick. What do you think Dr. Carson's going to do? Well, I'm sure your listeners are well familiar with Ben Carson. I think he's going to be a fascinating pick. He has uh, he has been criticized for his lack of uh, of agency and government experience, but the reality is he did a great job running for president of the United States. He, for a long time, has cared about low-income communities. It's where he came from. He, uh, I, I think, he's an excellent communicator. He he really, uh, I think, will go out to these low-income communities and families who are in need of the safety, of a safety net and talk to them and really figure out how he can reform uh, HUD and what he can do to help, uh, you know, reduce a lot of the waste. But maybe in, I think there's a chance that he can inspire some of these low-income communities uh, to kind of get off their feet and use these government programs just for temporary means. And uh, I, I really think he serves as an inspiration for them. Kelsey Harkness is a senior news producer at The Daily Signal on Twitter. She's at Kelsey J. Harkness. Great to have you, Kelsey. Thanks for stopping by the Freedom Hut. Thank you, Beth. Uh, team phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We will be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Very interesting piece in the uh, Hollywood Reporter from earlier in the week. Not a newspaper, or not a newspaper, not a magazine or a website I'd spend much time on. But Time Warner, huge company, owns a lot of media properties, uh, cable provider. Uh, Time Warner CEO Jeffrey Bukes, I think you say his name. Maybe it's Bukes, but I think it's Bukes. Who knows? Let's call him Jeff. What's up, Jeff? He says Democrats were a bigger First Amendment threat than Trump. He was speaking to Business Insider CEO Henry Blodgett at a conference. And Blodgett said, uh, Blodgett asked him, rather, about Donald Trump complaining about CNN's coverage. And 
you know, you, you hear this a lot now that we should all be so worried for the future of democracy because Donald Trump is uh, going to do these terrible things in the media and he's going to, uh, you know, act like such a tyrant and all this stuff, right? There's, there's a lot of that happening. There's a lot of that going on. And yet here you have someone who is very plugged into the media scene, certainly a media elite, the Time Warner CEO, I'm sure this guy's making a ton of money, saying that the threat, this is the quote, the threat to the First Amendment came from the Democratic side more. He argued that journalists viewed uh, a Democratic plank overly charitably. Um, and he then goes into some of the other aspects of the First Amendment that they threatened. He just didn't, he doesn't take Trump seriously on threats to the First Amendment. And this is something that I think people have had to get used to, that just because Trump says something doesn't mean it's going to happen or he's serious. Um, but this is what Bukes had to say. That uh, The press tends to miss that because they tend to lean that way, uh, lean, lean left, and therefore they were supporting what they were viewing, I think overly charitably, as something in cleaning up money in politics when in fact what it would do is restrain multiple voices. So I thought the threat to the First Amendment came from the Democratic side more. I think there won't be a serious effort on the Republican side. Um, Hillary Clinton, remember, often would yell about Citizens United on the campaign trail. And I've been saying this to you for quite some time, and I, I like saying it to you because it really hammers home the point. Citizens United was a Supreme Court case in which the government's position was that within either 30 or 60 days, depending on the medium used, they could ban expression about a political candidate in certain, you know, in certain ways. They're not going to ban CBS Evening News from being in the tank for Hillary. They're, they're not going to ban NPR. But if you wanted to release a movie, in this case, a movie about Hillary Clinton and how awful she is, that would be restricted because it's campaign finance reform. No, that's just a limitation on free speech. That's all that is. Um, that's just violating the, the, the very really central spirit of the First Amendment. Right? Free expression about politics. If we don't have that, what, what do we have in terms of a free press and freedom of speech? So interesting that, that uh, Bukes here was willing to come out and say that. I, well, once you're worth a certain amount of money, I mean, we're going to see more and more of this, I think. Trump has uh, established this for many others to see. You got to have enough cash in the bank that they can't just shake you down and scare you. Uh, if you're going to be somebody who's in a role like this, a CEO that speaks out in any sense about how the left controls media or how the left operates, if you're worried about where your next paycheck is coming from, it's going to be too much stress. So here you've got the CEO of Time Warner, as I said, huge company, saying that the threat to free speech comes from the left. And, and, it, and it came from the left openly during the campaign. It's, it's been around for a long time. And, and you go back and you look at the history of who's always trying to, to say that the government gets to tell you what you can say. And it's always on the left, right? Whether the fairness doctrine, all this campaign finance nonsense that they try to trot out there, it, it always comes from the left. You don't have conservatives, you don't have Republicans who are trying to use the power of government to force people to not talk about stuff. This is a specific, you know, there's a lot of stuff where you could say, you know, corruption, cronyism. There can be some on, on one side or the other, you know, a pox on both their houses, whatever. This is very specific to the progressive leftist mindset that the government, because they're so certain 
in their beliefs, they can't handle the uncertainty that would be caused by others challenging their beliefs. And here we've got a very prominent member of the media who's willing to say that. Um, here, here's some more. We were still before the election, and we know some of the strains of populism in the election on both sides. I'm not saying whether everybody thought it was the cable company merging with the phone company. They're different competitive issues, but it isn't that. I think that when it becomes clear what we're doing, it will become clear to everyone that it will be pro-competitive, pro-consumer, and improve competition. Well, this is just now sort of... Sorry, I, I actually uh, read the wrong quote to you there. That's <laughs> my bad. That's uh, him just talking about the merger, the Time Warner Comcast merger. Oh, yeah, that's going to make things more competitive, right? Look, people have their interests and they can advocate for their interests, but that's what I see happening there. Um, and uh, here you see they've got a budget, uh, a pretty hefty budget, a couple billion dollars at HBO. Wow. Um, we're not spending our programming money on library product, we're doing original shows. We're increasing it. Yeah. Look, HBO is doing a lot of great original programming, which is very expensive. I don't put Westworld in that category, though. I found Westworld to be pretty underwhelming, quite honestly. I know people like the philosophical side of it, and they like to have to think a lot about a show. I kind of like some, you know, this is going to sound bad. I like a fair amount of the thinking to be done for me by the writers in the sense that the story is coherent, and they surprise me with things, and it's clever, I mean, I am watching an HBO show really to be entertained. I'm not watching it so that I can be confused and befuddled afterwards and sort of wander around in a haze and think to myself, hmm, how am I exactly supposed to uh, interpret what I just saw there? So uh, a lot of the I'm still, by the way, bailed out on The Walking Dead. I haven't ever since that first episode i've been unwilling to go back to it it was just too much for me so i do that i mean there there is a line lost for me crossed that line which is a jj abram show westworld is also a jj abram show and i see similarities between lost and westworld in that there's no way they're going to be able to make this make sense and connect all the loose ends and somehow bring this bring this thing together no way they're going to need some sort of a cheap out, you know. At the end of Westworld, they're going to say, oh, you know, it was all Hurley's dream or whatever. Uh, so that's what I see happening there. Anyway, the, the threat of the First Amendment comes from the Democrats, though. That's the, uh, that's the main thread here. And even some very prominent media CEOs understand that. Uh, it's the left that wants to control speech. It's the left that wants to tell you what you can and cannot say, think and do. And we should just be on guard about that. And remember that every time someone tries to bring up that Donald Trump is the real threat to the First Amendment. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's some bluster on that stuff, but I, I think that history shows very clearly that if you're worried about being able to raise your voice and, and share your opinions, whether it's through uh, online means or some of the old school media that's out there, Democrats the ones are going to try to shut you down. Third hour, we're going to talk some national security and some other odds and ends we're going to throw in together. And wow, I can't believe Friday's almost already here. Hour three coming up, team. Be right back. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. Welcome to hour three. Let's get into a Buck brief. You are 
entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the bug brief. Matt McKinnis is on the line. He is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on Iran and issues in the Persian Gulf. Matt, great to have you. Thanks for joining the show. Ah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, so let's talk a bit about uh, the Iran deal going forward. What do you think Trump is going to do with this thing? What 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 do you think Trump will do? And then we can talk about what you, what should he do. Well, I, I I think the the main thing that he wants to do when he gets into office is is take a hard look uh, at what's really going on with the deal. Uh, I think, frankly, he needs a, a really a good intelligence brief on it. Uh, see what what the Iranians are, have been up to, uh, you know, since since the deal was signed. Uh, and and I think he's going to take uh, you know figure out you know how he wants to really ratchet up the pressure on the Iranians. I I, I really doubt he's going to to uh, to rip up the deal the first day. Uh, I think all, all the signs are pointing to rather how do we potentially renegotiate this deal? How do we use the uh, existing structure of the deal to put the screws to the Iranians to keep, you know, hold their feet to the fire on the deal? What are the biggest, uh, for you, what are the biggest failures that are that are in this deal, Matt? Well, it, 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 I think everyone agrees that the, the, the big problems with it uh, are we, we can't go to their military sites to do inspections, which is where if they're doing any type of nuclear weapons research, that's where it's happening. Um, and we're not allowed to go there. Uh, and so if they're doing any covert activities, uh, it's going to be almost impossible for us to know that's happening. Uh, the other part of it is, is the sunset clause, that you know this deal's only going to last for you know 10 to 15 years. Um, and once that's done, uh, it's going to be really difficult to keep them from being able to dash to a nuclear weapon uh, in about a month or two uh, if they want to do that. In fact, not just a nuclear weapon, but perhaps an entire arsenal if they wanted to. So I think finding a cap at the end of the deal, uh, getting a better cap, uh, and, and frankly, getting better access to those military sites, those are the big issues. What is Iran's game plan? What are they trying to do uh, from a from a military and national security perspective? What are they trying to accomplish in the first couple of years, let's say, of a Trump administration? How are they going to use force and use their proxies across the Middle East? Well, the, the Iranians are actually finally looking at, uh, you know, after a long slog in Iraq and Syria uh, with their proxies and, 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 you know, competing with, you know, Saudi Arabia, uh, battling ISIS in Iraq and other places, that they're, they're looking at some form of victory uh, where they're going to have influence, uh, you know, stretching all the way from Lebanon through Syria and Iraq, uh, you know, down into the Arabian Peninsula, you know, they're, they're seeing a chance to really have that dominant role in the Middle East that they have wanted for a very, very long time. Uh, and I think they're going to want to see if Trump uh, is going to challenge that. Uh, and I think that's what they're they're going to test uh, and and see. And they're being backed by, you know, by the Russians now uh, in their in their play. And, and I think that it's, you know, does does Trump want to contest that? Uh, is he going to let you know, continue to let that process happen. Uh, those are, you know, are we going to work with our allies in Israel uh, and elsewhere in the region uh, uh, to, you know, to prevent that? I, I don't know. These are the big questions for the administration. But how would the administration, how should the administration go about that? Let's assume General Mattis gets confirmed as Secretary of Defense. You've got Trump, Mattis, uh, National Security Advisor Flynn, 
Secretary of State, still TBD, we'll find out next week. Uh, but h- how should they be trying to counter uh, counteract Iranian, uh, you know, detrimental Iranian intentions in and around the Persian Gulf area, the broader Middle East? Well, I think, you know, we certainly should be, uh, you know, supporting our allies there in, in, in the region. I mean, that's, that's the, certainly the first step. Uh, I, I think we, we, we need to continue uh, our efforts uh, at, at countering uh, Iran's, you know, support for terrorism and, and, and support to proxy groups. I, I think that there's a lot of, that we can be doing more uh, on sanctions, uh, counterterrorism operations against uh, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, and uh, and, and, and as well as trying to counter their efforts at building their ballistic missile force uh, that threatens our allies there in the region. There's a, there's a lot that uh, we can't necessarily wipe all the, that capability out. I mean, that, that may be too tough of a task, but I think there's a lot we can do to roll back and to contain Iran uh, there in the region. And I think Trump needs to put that uh, pretty high on his agenda. Uh, what about building up the Saudis even more militarily as a, a sort of counterbalance to Iranian intentions? That seems like a, something we've been doing. Um, is is that a is that a policy that you think we may come to regret one day, not too far from now, or do you think that's the only policy that we could put in place? Well, I, I certainly think you know ensuring that the the Saudis um, are are strong and stable is you know is a is a is a rational policy all the way around. Uh, I mean, certainly there there are a lot of things that the Saudis uh, do that are problematic for us. Uh, that uh, you know are, are a different set of issues that need to be discussed. But I, I I think the Saudis are part of that. The Emiratis are part of that counterweight uh, to Iran. Certainly, you know, uh, staying close, you know, with our friends and the Israelis, um, as well as other uh, allies there in the region. Um, you know, but the main thing is I think you know we need to be looking at, you know, what is Iran doing that is, is fundamentally destabilizing the entire region uh, and and what we need to be doing, not just with our allies there, but there's a broader international community that, you know, should be, we need to be working with to make sure that Iran, what Iran is trying to do in building these proxy groups uh, and, and fueling sectarian wars there in the region, which then create crisis for everybody, um, what we can do to stem that, I think, is something that everyone should be concerned about. Iran has a strong hand right now in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon. Uh, Those don't seem to be places where we particularly have the leverage to use to push back against what are Iranian ground deployments in some cases. So wouldn't there have to be a pretty dramatic shift in U.S. policy towards dealing with the Iranians if we were to really try to confront that head on? We can talk about economic sanctions. We can talk about uh, you know, sort of diplomatic, uh, diplomatic responses. But if the response is going to be military, not necessarily, uh, you know, going sort of guns blazing, but if there's going to be some sort of a military counterbalance to these Iranian forces, well, I mean, where would it come from and who, who can we count on? Oh. Well, no, I, I said I think that there is a broader international uh, community for this, in the, you know, certainly with our, our European allies and our allies there in the region. Um, you know, I, I think, frankly, that there's roles for everything from our special forces uh, in this, you know, to be able to, uh, you know, potentially uh, counter some of the activities of the, the Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, and, and, the, and the Quds Force from Iran, um, and, you know, that it, as well as, frankly, you know, being able to help interdict some of the, you know, the ship weapon shipments that Iran does in the region, that, that's a critical part of this. Um, you know, so I, I think that there are ways to 
to disrupt and roll back what Iran does, um, and, you know, as well as, frankly, you know, being able to demonstrate that, that the U.S. You know, is going to continue uh, being an effective deterrent uh, for what Iran, Iran's uh, efforts to expand its military as well as you know, ideological and, and political power in the region. Uh, I think these are all things that can be done without necessarily going into a full-bore uh, military conflict with, with Tehran. Matt McInnes is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. You can read his latest at AEI.org. And uh, Matt, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, team, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We'll be back in a few minutes. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. Team, I wanted to uh, share something with you here. Um, uh, and it comes from, we're talking a lot about the various uh, Trump appointees. And of course, there's a lot of politics that surrounds all this. And you know, people are going to say things about some of these individuals that are really nasty. And some people are going to defend things that maybe shouldn't necessarily be defended. It's politics, right? We, we all understand that. We get that. Um, but I, I do think that you're noticing sort of a, a consensus forming among most people who are trying to be fair-minded that, you know, overall, it's it's a pretty good, pretty strong group that's being pulled together uh, to be at the sort of top echelon of the uh, Trump administration, that it's actually... Uh, a lot of people who have either really relevant uh, experience and backgrounds or well, and, and in addition to that, in some cases, have pretty remarkable service uh, to their country. And there are a number of generals, as you know, and this has gotten some on the left uh, a bit riled up because they seem to think that the no- that there can be just too many generals in government, I guess, in per- period, even if there are generals who have left. Um, but I wanted to share something with you. I saw this um, last night as I was preparing for today's show, uh, and it is from General Kelly, who is going to be, uh, once he's confirmed, the Department of Homeland Security's uh, secretary. And look, the one thing I will say in this country is there's a sense of, uh, for the most part, a bipartisan uh, reverence for military service. I think it's much... Uh, it's more uniform, it's more widespread or more sort of uh, absolute on the right than it is on the left. The left tends to have more people who either look down on military service or whatever. But overall, the Democrats and Republicans, left and right in this country, have an understanding of what it means to serve and and respect it and uh, and have a, a reverence for that service. And General Kelly is one of those very senior military officers, and there are a few. I, I believe General Odierno, who was a four-star in Iraq, uh, really sort of was Petraeus's number two for a while, I remember. Uh, and I believe Odierno had a son who was wounded, although I should check on that. I don't want to say something that, I'm, that I have to correct. I believe he had, but I know he had a son who served. I think he had a son who was very seriously wounded. 
uh, in Iraq. Um, and you have some of these, the senior military brass. Uh, they have sons and daughters who serve in the military as well. And, of course, that can mean that some of them, uh, including a, a very, very senior member of the Pentagon, can suffer the kind of loss that so many Americans have over the course of these wars uh, by losing a, a son or a daughter in combat. And this was, uh, these are the words of General Kelly on losing, on losing his son uh, in Afghanistan. And I wanted to just read them to you verbatim. I think this gives you a sense of who this man is, and it'll resonate, I'm sure, with, with many of you, uh, many of you who have served, and also many of you who have loved ones uh, who have served, and perhaps even some of you listening who have had loved ones who have served and, and who were lost in action, who have been killed in action, uh, or, or wounded. So here's what General Kelly said about the loss of his son. Since the day I had my turn standing in the door, looking into the glistening eyes of a casualty officer, and the day I woke my wonderful wife and crushed her heart with the news and had to nearly pick my daughter up off the floor where she worked, I have desperately tried to convince myself that it was worth it. I have worked hard at believing his life was worth the sacrifice on the altar of America's freedom. But it all came to me the day we buried him in the sacred ground that is Arlington, at Section 60, Gravesite Number 9480. It doesn't matter at all what I think. The only thing that matters is what he thought, that he had decided it was more important to be where he was that morning in the Sangin River Valley, Afghanistan, to be doing what he was doing with the Marines and Doc he loved so much and led so well in what was at that time the most dangerous place on earth. That's the kind of individual that you want to be uh, in a position of true leadership, somebody who uh, understands the gravity of the sacrifices that are made with each passing day by our military because he had to deal with that sacrifice himself. Uh, we have had U.S. Uh, we've taken U.S. casualties recently in Afghanistan. We continue to take casualties there. Uh, we have had uh, some, although fortunately very few, um, incidents of casualties in Iraq. Uh, but this continues to happen. And, and I think that in the political back and forth over all this, especially as somebody who spends a, a lot of his time thinking about national security issues and trying to analyze uh, the best ways to go about uh, defeating enemies that we must defeat, uh, like the Islamic State, it's important to keep in mind what that cost is. Um, I didn't, uh, it's not something that I just volunteered to do. I, I remember, as I've mentioned to you in the past, uh, spending time at Walter Reed uh, with a friend who was uh, very seriously wounded. He was ended up being, I mean, okay would be too strong a word, but he ended up with most most of uh, most of his function back, and and you know, he certainly survived, and he was in the end he was all right. Uh, but spending time there, I remember visiting the first time, and he said uh, all he he wanted me to bring him five guys. So I went on a mission to five guys right away um, with a friend of mine, and we we brought him five guys, and we spent uh, spent the afternoon there with him and visited with him. 
and you saw the people, uh, the servicemen and women um, in that building and the wounds that individuals were dealing with, it is sobering. It is something that I honestly think it would be we'd be better off as a country if everybody at some point in time would just go to a uh, go to uh, the equivalent of a Walter Reed, if not Walter Reed, and see what it's like for some of those who have served and the uh, challenges that they face. It also certainly per, uh, puts into perspective. I, you know, I think it's it's easy, especially right now, you see so much. Uh, hyperventilating in the media about this doomed uh, future and how how will people cope and because their favorite political candidate didn't win it's like the world is just collapsing in around them some people have had in this country some of the best and uh, some of our our bravest and most dedicated and most honorable citizens many of them have had real reason to think the world was closing in around them because they either themselves were struggling uh, mightily against horrific wounds, uh, whether internal or external, uh, whether psychological or physical or both, um, or had to be the uh, support for a loved one who went through that. You know, this is where you start to see, you know, the, the, the childishness with which people on the left decry the sort of the fall of the republic. It's really all a game to them. But defending this country and taking it, uh, taking the defense of freedom seriously, not just thinking that it's uh, a slogan to be thrown around, you know, at political rallies or um, in some cases, I think for the left to be used almost ironically uh, for, for many people, it's it is a life's work and it's not just a life's work. It's something they're willing to lay their life down to defend. Um, and this this really uh, this it's short, this section from. General Kelly, uh, it really stuck with me. I mean, he just sang it exactly like it is. Um, and, you know, I was particularly, I don't know, I was, I was up last night and I was preparing for the show and I felt like I would be doing all of us uh, a service of sorts just by sharing it um, and letting it be known. You know, these are the kinds of people that serve in the United States military. And, and I think it's very encouraging that someone like uh, General Kelly is going to be in a position to try and help the defense of this country as Homeland Security Secretary after having served honorably in the military for his his whole career. So you know, he he said it. Uh, it's this, the horrific pain that his family had to go through. And, and it, at the end, it's not whether he understands why his son gave his life for his country, it's that that's what his son wanted to do. It's uh, powerful stuff. And we're going to go to a break, and we'll be back, and we'll talk about something that's not going to choke me up. I'll be right back. The Bug Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Let's talk about the Trump administration and nukes. We're joined by Michaela Dodge. She is a senior policy analyst for defense and strategic policy at the uh, Heritage Foundation. Michaela, thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me. 
Uh, so Trump administration, nukes, they should look at it and they should do what? Well, I think the first step is to reassess U.S. nuclear posture, which currently assumes that Russia is no longer an adversary and potential for conflict is low. I think it will be important to continue to maintain the triad, modernize nuclear systems, and then take opportunities to put U.S. nuclear weapons policy on a more sound ground. What would that mean? I mean, on a sound ground, how? What are are we doing wrong now? What has the Obama administration been doing that's moving in the wrong direction? Uh, For example, for the past several years, we've been unilaterally decreasing the number of our nuclear weapons while Russia is increasing and everybody else is modernizing and increasing. Um, We have been, we made policy decision to not to test our nuclear weapons. And, you know, that's not your big explosions in the Pacific or underground in Nevada test sites. It's any, any experiments involving yield Um, And these experiments can be very important in trying to understand how our weapons age, how our warheads age, and how to maintain them better. Um, So that would be another example how you can make our nuclear policy better. And people who say things like, well, whether we have 100 or 1,000 nuclear weapons, what difference does it really make? I mean, how how do you try to educate people about that, Michaela? Um. I think, you know, the the best the, – the thing is numbers matter, and we may not think that they matter, but our adversaries think that they matter. And so what we have to do is try to understand how our adversaries think about what they value. Um, so at the core of deterrence in preventing um, big, large-scale, great power conflict is – trying to make sure you understand what it is that you can destroy, that you can inflict damage so devastating that your adversary will not make that first move. Um, and I think it, it's an it's a intellectually very challenging problem, but it's just critical that we put in the effort. What are the, uh, what are the most essential non-proliferation challenges and, and, and uh, facing the Trump administration and uh, how do you think they should go about tackling them? Uh, I think um, I think the first one that they will have to tackle is the Iran deal. Um, the deal was flawed. It was very poorly negotiated. Uh, it's not stopping Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. Um, and Iran is violating this deal. Um, and I think it's going to be important. We, we, we never hear other- about that, by the way. We never hear about Iran. Vi- like, how has Iran violated the deal already? So, for example, it exceeded um, the permissible number of the nuclear materials that it was permitted under the deal. Um, Now it is saying that if Congress reenacts sanctions on it, you know, the threat of sanctions is going to be a violation of the deal on the U.S. side. So, again, you know, this is not the Iranian violation, but it's a very significant disagreement in how the Obama administration presented the deal to the general public. Um, and what, what about North Korea? Uh, are there any other countries, by the way, that you think are, are poised to sort of get on the, on the road uh, to n- n- nuclear, nuclear weapons or nuclear power status that don't necessarily get as much attention? There was a time when people were saying, well, if the Iranians go nuclear or get close to it, the Saudis are going to want to do so, and maybe they can just sort of borrow a bomb from Pakistan. I mean, there's all these things that we used to hear about. I haven't heard much of it lately, 
What are, what are some of the other than Iran? What are some of the threats and challenges for uh, non-proliferation efforts? You know, I think the Middle East is a it, it's a just significant one, and with Iran having access to new technologies and more cash and um, kind of being more opened up to the global economy, I think that's going to cause a whole different set of proliferation concerns as they cooperate with other states in the region and around the world um, on potentially spreading these technologies. You have North Korea that remains your perennial problematic state, and that will not go away either. Absolutely. Michaela Dodge is a senior policy analyst at the uh, Heritage Foundation. She's an expert on nuclear weapons and nuclear nonproliferation. Uh, you can read more about her and her work at heritage.org. Michaela, thank you very much for calling in. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, team, we will be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. We got a call up on the board from Rocky the Beekeeper in Nebraska. Rocky, are you actually a beekeeper? I am, Buck. I uh, I just love raising bees, although they they fall prey to uh, crop dusters this season. So I'm I'm beeless. How do you? So so you okay? But but usually you actually are a beekeeper. So you make you or rather you gather the bees for the making of honey. Yes. Yeah, it's a real fascinating thing to do. Uh, really rewarding. Bees are bees are just totally awesome. <laughs> Tell me why bees are. This is fascinating. I know you want to talk about something else that we're, but I'm just curious because I've never I've had a beekeeper on here before, and I've talked about the. I feel bad now because I refer to the burke the the burka as beekeeper chic, but I'm sure what you wear is way more chic than a burka. Uh, but why, oh, tell me, tell me, what would I not know about? I mean, all I know about bees is they make honey and they can sting me. What else can I know? Well. I'll tell you one that makes people go gee whiz sometimes. Um, I actually like to get stung in my hands uh, Wait, when I what? handle the bees. I like Is this to the kind of thing you want to share hands. on air? This is kind of some weird stuff. You like getting stung? No. no. Uh, the, the bees carry something in their sting that relieves my arthritis. Oh, wow. I have arthritis in my hands, and after the bees sting me, I get about 48 hours of relief from it. So Really? Yeah, I don't mind. A little bit of pain, and then I feel like I've got little kid dance for a couple of days. But, I mean, <laughs> did, do, the, do they get to know you, or, like, will they sting you no matter what? Or how, how do you – I'm just curious. Like, will you, you, do you do the whole um, – you must do the whole head-to-toe head to thing, or is, is there a way yeah. that you can make them mellow so they won't sting you? Yeah, you, you uh, smoke them. You take and you put a, a smoker. It's like a little billows that's in a can, and you put in like some uh, wood chips, some wet wood chips, and then you burn it, and then you smoke the bees. And what it does is bees may basically work on a, a colony mentality where the colony does different things because of the pheromones that are secreted by other bees, and it's it gets to be kind of complicated in some ways because. You've got different bees that are specialized in different jobs, and those pheromones control 
which of the jobs are increased and decreased um, as to like the number of drones or uh, if there is an extra queen being born because there's really only one queen in a hive mainly and they'll kill the rest. And all of that works off the smell. But when you spray that smoke in there, uh, the pheromones are not able to be smelled by the bees and they become rather docile actually. And uh, when you first start beekeeping, you go in that full beekeeper, like you said, the burka type thing. But um, after you deal with them a while and you get more comfortable, I usually just wear a mask because I'm afraid for them getting in my mouth and my eyes and things of that nature. But uh, the body, you know, it's not that big a deal. And, gotcha. and those, those, uh, my bee soup is simply nothing more than a painter's outfit. It's made out of Tyvek, so it breathes a little bit, but they're extremely hot. So in the summertime, I usually opt not to wear the full beekeeper, just, just the face veil. Yeah, well, just don't don't let the Saudi Mutawa see you. They show too much ankle, you're in trouble. <laughs> so, Randy, what do you want to ask me about? Before I, I just saw that on the screen that you're a beekeeper, and I was curious. But what was your question? Yeah, my question. It's really short, actually. Um, I keep hearing toss around this number that uh, Secretary of Defense has to be out of the military for seven years. I'm just curious, and I don't expect you to know this off the top of your head, but maybe you could put out some feelers. I'm curious where that comes from. It sounds to me something like Congress would do just to try and uh, get a leg up on a on a general. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think I think Congress. I want to say that was passed. Um, I should check, but because uh, I was going to throw out a number, I think I'm wrong. Nineteen forty seven. That sounds right to me. But anyway, yeah, yeah that, it was nineteen forty seven. Okay. Yeah, even when yeah, I think I I'm wrong, I'm right. Number. I like it. I looked it up. Yeah, good. I never have so, seen an explanation though for it. And I, I think I, it's I, one I, of those sort of arbitrary rules that government comes up with that I, I, I don't really know why. I mean, I look, it, it's because they want civilian control of the military. But, you know, after seven years, you know, why not two years? You know, seven years seems like a pretty long time. Uh, I'm not really clear on. And by the way, that doesn't apply to, uh, you know, any, anything else uh, that I know of in, in government. Right. I mean, there's not I, I this sort of I, I don't know. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I don't know if, if you were an intel officer. You know, on the civilian side, oh, I guess that doesn't get caught up in this military rule. Um, yeah, I, I'll be totally frank with you, uh, Rocky. I did not even know that this was a rule until it came up with Mattis. I was unaware that there was a seven-year. I, I didn't either, and it just—it kind of smells. It smells funny to me. It doesn't smell right. It's because it can't be due to security. I mean, for goodness sakes, it, you know, if you're a general and you've been, you know, able to get, you know, uh, TS you know, whatever type clearance all the way on up, uh, if you've got that, you know, it's not like there's any sort of problem there. I don't see any problem with, you know, uh, financial gain. I, I, I would trust a general way more than I trust our congressman to be taking those uh, positions. So yeah, it's just I, a question. No, it's a, it's a good question. I'll, I'll look into it. I, I don't really know what the, uh, what the rationale behind it is. It seems... It seems a bit arbitrary to me, but uh, Rocky, I will look into it, and maybe I'll have an answer for you tomorrow on Freestyle Friday. How about that? I, I think that's and how great. Do I, how I do I get hooked up with some... Bring you, some you know what I was going to ask for. That's right. How do I get hooked up yeah. with some artisan honey? <laughs> I'll bring you some, yeah, I can, <laughs> I can also give you a uh, hog factoid, since I was a hog farmer when I was a kid. On the oh farm. wow! I mean, I eat bacon every. I eat bacon and eggs pretty much every morning. So uh, that's 
and I'm, I have to say, since I started doing that, I'm in better shape and, and healthier eating bacon and eggs every morning uh, than in the old days when I would eat like, uh, you know, croissant or, uh, you know, bagels or any of that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm a big believer. All, in... these diet, all the dietary warnings are all bogus. Oh, yeah, no, bacon is great for bad. you. It's just, you know, everything in, moder- everything in moderation. Yeah, it's crazy. Pork all right, Rocky, keep making that, keep making right. that sweet honey, my man. Thank you for calling in. Good to talk to you. Um, yeah, I was going, I'm hoping to have on to the show at some point soon, uh, a, a guest who just wrote a book on sort of the history of food, actually, uh, Sarah Lohman. She's a, we're I just thought of this now. I asked Amy to get her on soon because I saw this piece, uh, it's called kebabs of the next hamburgers, how war and immigration predict what we eat. I'm not, I don't really like that headline. It's not really, it's not that it predicts what we eat, but there, look, there's a, there's a correlation Obviously, between move, uh, population movements and cuisine, uh, this has been something that ha- it's been around for a long time. I mean, I, I think I've talked to you before about the history of coffee and how coffee and, and originally comes from is Yemeni tra- uh, traders would move along the eastern coast of Africa. You can't, obviously can't grow coffee in the desert in Yemen, um, but Mocha was a port on what is now or on the coast of what is now Yemen. And you know, who knew that, huh? When you order a mocha, it's named after a city in Yemen. Just like Shiraz or Syrah, which is the French version of Syrah, is named after a city in, oh, that's right, Iran, because Iran used to be a major wine producer uh, with excellent grapes. And then, of course, it went all, you know, hardline Islamakazi with the mullahs, and they don't really make a lot of good wine anymore. Uh, you get what I'm saying? The, but the coffee made its way, and people think of like talkie, coffee as being sort of a Turkish product. Well, that's because the Ottoman Empire controlled the Arabian Peninsula, and, and this is how you have the introduction of, of coffee into things. Whereas chocolate actually came from the New World, which I always find fascinating. Chocolate really came from South America. As you know, the Aztecs would drink a version of chocolate, but it was bitter. It was really just had chilies. They didn't use sugar. I think it was the European monks who actually added sugar to the uh, bricks of sort of baked cacao, that chocolate. Um, and, and that's how we get the chocolate we have today. Uh, but it is fascinating to sort of look at uh, where certain cuisine, how certain cuisines have coincided uh, with population movements into, into this country. One thing that they talked about in this piece that I didn't know was that th- usually people would think of uh, soy sauce as a Chinese, well, I mean, they're both Chinese and Japanese, but soy sauce, just because of all the, Chinese immigration in this country. You'd think that soy sauce was uh, introduced in the United States by the Chinese. I'm sure you already know this, by the way, but uh, fortune cookies started in San Francisco, um, not in China. There are, no, there are no fortune cookies really in China. At least that's... Some of this stuff also gets a lot of urban legends around all this, so you hear things that are not true. The great one about the, the croissant being in the, in the crescent shape is actually as People, there are stories that it's to commemorate the Battle of Lepanto, believe it or not, and the victory of, or was it the Battle of Siege of Vienna? It might have been the Siege of Vienna, actually, pardon me. Or was Lepanto? I can't remember now. I think it's Siege of Vienna. And so you'd eat the crescent moon, and that's where the croissant, anyway. I think that, that sounds a little urban legendy to me, but you hear these things. Uh, so anyway, I didn't have the time because we went a little along with Rocky there. I was interested in learning about beekeeping to get into the history of food uh, and how it ties into this country. Maybe that'll be a guess we could do tomorrow. That would be fun. Or next week. We'll talk a bit about the history of food and how it ties into immigration. Yay. Because I like to mix up the topics, everybody. Uh, Please download today's show. It's uh, the best thing you can do for me. The biggest favor you can do to Freedom Hut is to share the podcast, the show, with a friend. 
um, explain to them what Shields High means, show off a little knowledge of you know ancient Greece in the process. Uh, Freestyle Fridays tomorrow, at twelve Eastern. Until then, my friends, Shields High. The Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network.